This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Happy New Year's from Office Hours and Westminster Seminary, California. If you are of a certain age, you remember when Caitlyn Jenner was Bruce Jenner one of the greatest Olympic athletes in modern history. If you're a little younger, you might remember when Elliot Page was the actress Ellen Page, who starred in the film Juno. Were you to search the Internet, however, you might not find much about Ellen. That person, Ellen, has been, as they say, memory hold. And should you dare refer to Elliot as Ellen or Caitlin as Bruce, you may be accused of deadnaming. And in some places, that can get you hauled before the local Civil Rights Commission and a hefty fine. So, if you're wondering how on earth, well, you're not alone. And the good news is, you're not insane. Caitlin and Elliot are symptoms of what Carl Truman calls the rise and triumph of the modern self cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. That's the title of his latest book, just out from Crossway and available on Amazon and in good bookstores everywhere. I get a lot of books in the mail. Some are worth reading and some are not my cup of tea. And only a few are important. This is one of those. It's not an easy book, but it's a good book. And it's important because it explains brilliantly what happened and why. How did we get to this place? Carl is the author of several other books. He writes regularly in First Things magazine and is the co-host of the Mortification of Spin podcast. He's also visiting professor in historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and his full-time job is as professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. And he joins us now to talk about his important new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Hi, Carl, and welcome back to Office Hours. Great to be here, Scott, and great to hear your voice. Thanks for having me on. Well, we are very happy to have you on and excited to talk about this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, just out from Crossway. And uh, by the time the listener is hearing this, it's after Christmas, so it would make a fine New Year's present for someone, if there is such a thing. I don't know, but uh, everyone should get a copy of this and uh, read it and give it to anyone who reads. I'm very enthused about this. So let's try to put this book in some personal context. First of all, you did your doctoral work on the influence of Luther's theology in the early English Reformation, and then you branched out to write on the development of Reformed Orthodoxy. You've written about politics and historiography, but how did you come to write about the therapeutic, cultural, you know, expressive individualist turn in the sexual revolution? Good question. A number of sort of strands of my life sort of come together in this book. I think one of them was, as you correctly point out, uh, and you and I, of course, worked together on projects on the history of Reformed Orthodoxy. That's been my life for many years, but maybe sort of seven or eight years ago, I realized that I'd pretty much said everything that I wanted to say in that field. I could carry on saying the same stuff, but I was interested in doing something else. I was looking for another project. And then I was approached by Justin Taylor at Crossway and Rod Dreher of the American Conservative, who asked if I would write a short introduction on the thought of Philip Reef, the psychological sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, most famous for his book, uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. 
And I said I'd look at it, and as I started to work on that project, it became clear to me that a more interesting project would be to use Reef and some other thinkers in order to address the rising tide of sexual identity politics in the United States. I picked up the project around about 2015 when gay marriage was the big public square issue, the build-up to Obergefell versus Hodges. And of course, at the same time as that was breaking, we had the Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner issue. And it struck me that it would be helpful for people in general, but certainly Christians and the church in particular, to be able to set these kind of things in some sort of historical context and have maybe some analytic tools at their disposal, which would allow us as Christians to understand what's going on in the culture, to set it in a broader cultural context and to sort of, I won't say predict the future, but at least prepare ourselves for the way sexual identity politics in particular and identity politics in general are transforming the culture in which we find ourselves now. It's important not to be naive. It's important to pay attention to the world around us. And in that regard, you say it seems intuitively correct to Joe Smith to affirm Bruce Jenner as Caitlin because it seems hurtful not to do so. It wasn't long ago that someone would have called for an ambulance for Jenner to have him committed for observation and treatment. So why did Joe's intuitions change? Yeah, that's a huge story. And uh, yeah takes me about 406 pages to sell it, of course. But essentially, when you think about transgenderism, for the statements, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body to make sense, a number of things have to become accepted, broadly accepted by society. One of them is that feelings have to have a sort of final authority in our identity. So we have to live in a culture where what you feel inside has become the most important thing about who you are. Secondly, we have to live in a society sort of connected to that first point where the body is no longer really considered to be integral to who we are, but is rather an instrument for achieving our identity. So there are those two sort of things that are in play. And thirdly, I think for, to get to the other aspect of what you said, you know, why would it be deemed as hurtful to reject Jenna's new identity? We have to come to a view of the self and of the self in society, whereby what I decide is my identity needs to be recognized, needs to be accepted by other people within certain limits, of course. You know, we're not going to accept the identity of a serial killer, at least just yet. But there has to be that idea that ultimately I am sovereign and I get to decide who I am. And you need to play along with that. You need to not simply tolerate me. You need to affirm me in my uh, identity. And you mentioned at the start the issue of dead naming been some interesting responses to uh, the Ellen slash Elliot Page incidents of, of the last, I suppose it'll be a couple of months by the time this program airs, but of recent times where people have been going out of the way to explain why dead naming is wrong. And it always comes down to, I get the right to autonomously decide who I am. And if you use a name that I don't choose, then you are oppressing me and preventing me from being my real, authentic self. So it's those things coming into play that's so significant. And that's a long story. It starts way back in really in the 18th century is where it starts to kick off with uh, Rousseau, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who places a great emphasis upon that inner voice of nature and the ability of the individual to express that in the public square. 
it's intensified through the Romantics uh, in the early 19th century. And in some ways, it's sort of the default of modern Western culture now. When you think, uh, every time you switch the television on, you're presented with images of human beings who are authentic. They are outwardly expressing their inward feelings. Their inward feelings are the most important thing about them. So that, in a nutshell, is what's gone on and, and sort of broadly speaking, how it's happened. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We, many of us anyway, have grown up thinking in some ways of America as a, quote, Christian nation, close quote. And I come from the plains, most of which is sparsely populated, and where that assumption is widely held. And at the same time, you can go into small towns now where one would expect sort of traditional view of the world to be well-established and unchallenged, and yet Ellen could, right, Ellen Elliott could present himself, herself to the community, and the new ethos, you would find, would already predominate there. As you were explaining it, I was thinking about some of the discussions that I know you've had and that I've had about niceness and how niceness dovetails with the new authority of the self to define myself autonomously however I will, and you have to recognize that. And if you don't recognize that, regardless of whatever objective reality may be, if there is such a thing anymore, you are a morally bad person and therefore not nice. Yes, and I think you're putting your finger on something uh, very deep there. I mean, obviously, your earlier comment about America as a Christian nation, I think we could probably say, well, America for many years had a moral framework that broadly tracked with Christian morality. But of course, the part of American culture is also the idea of the free individual. And the free individual sort of bumps up against uh, moral frameworks somewhat and will always test the strength of those moral frameworks. I think what we're seeing now, of course, is that, if you like, the, the generic Christian morality that flavored the nation for many years has been shown to have not been particularly solidly grounded for many generations now in, in a life of sort of vital Christian piety. In terms of the niceness, yes, uh, what we've seen in recent decades, maybe the last 40, 50 years, is a real shift from statements being assessed in terms of their truth value to statements being assessed in terms of what I would describe as their taste value. You and I, Scott, are both, shall I say, follically challenged. We, we <laughs> lack a certain thatch on top that we, we actually had when we first met each other nearly 30 years ago. And I say to the students, you know, you could point at Truman and laugh and say, you're bald. And that would be a hurtful comment. It would not be a nice comment. It would nonetheless be true. Yes. It would be a true comment. I think what's happened in a lot of modern society is that the truth question has become entirely bracketed out to the point now where really we're not interested in whether a description of somebody is true or false. It's a question of whether it's hurtful or not. It seems to me patently obvious that Ellen slash Elliot Page is a woman. But to say that now, it's not untrue. Or if it is untrue, it's merely considered to be untrue on the grounds that it's a hurtful comment. You know, it's a statement grounded in biological reality, if you like, rather than personal, emotional or psychological preference. And we're now in this psychological world where really taste has supplanted truth. 
as the primary category of ethical discourse. And, you know, this leads us in so many possibly fruitful directions, it's hard to know where to go. We're talking to Carl Truman. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're discussing his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, published by Crossway, available at Amazon and uh, good bookstores everywhere. I'll ask our campus bookstore to make sure that uh, we have copies and uh, may be able to get them through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. When uh, we think of Geneva, and you've already mentioned this fellow, we probably think about one Jean, or at least most listeners, namely Jean Calvin. But um, one of the central figures in the rise of the modern self is another Jean, and you've already mentioned him, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Why is Rousseau so important and why so revolutionary? Rousseau's where I start the book, and in some ways, I mean, you're a historian, Scott, you know that there is no such place as the perfect starting point. Wherever you start, somebody's going to come along and say, hang on a minute, this starting point didn't appear out of nowhere, there was a backstory. But I had to start somewhere. So I started with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher of the 18th century. And to me, he is perhaps the most articulate and brilliant representative of a particular trend that's taking place from the 17th century onwards, and that's the move inwards. The idea of the self is not constituted by how my self-consciousness plugs into a reality bigger than myself. If I'm born in the village I grew up in in the UK, if I was born there in the Middle Ages, I would have been, I would say, doomed to be a peasant farmer. You know, there'd be no question about who I was. I'd have been the son of so-and-so, and and I would have been on my way to being a peasant farmer. With Rousseau, you get this interesting move to say, no, what really constitutes us as persons is who we are in some ways before that external framework gets hold of us. Rousseau's idea was that the problem with human existence is man is born free and everywhere is in chains, everywhere he's pressed into a mold by the expectations of the society around him. It's complete drivel, of course, because as I said (laughs) to the students again and again, human beings are born incredibly dependent. I used to, as a kid, breed hamsters. Yeah, baby hamsters, independent of its mother after about two or three weeks. We are utterly dependent on other people for a rather scary, scary long time in terms of needing our parents to look after us and protect us. But anyway, the fact that an idea is nonsense never stopped it gripping the popular imagination. (laughs) That's basically Rousseau's idea, and he's essentially the guy who makes popular the notion that it's society that screws you up, that the authentic you is inside. Think about Bruce Jenner. When Bruce Jenner came out as Caitlin, the language in that Diana Sawyer interview was fascinating. It was all about, finally, I'm free to be the real me. I'm not having to perform the role that society has imposed upon me because of my body. That's Rousseau language parlayed into the sexual revolution. Whenever I think of Rousseau, I think he's the first hippie. (laughs) Everything that I remember of the hippies in the late 60s and early 70s, all of the rhetoric, all of the talk about throwing off the establishment and conventions, etc., that's all Rousseau. And What's interesting is that, you know, as fashionable as that rhetoric was from, say, 1967, you know, summer of love through maybe 72, 73, by the mid-70s, that had all collapsed. And by the early 80s, those hippies were wearing suits and making big money on Wall Street. And so it seemed like, well, okay, that was a phase and the boomers have outgrown it and gotten in touch with reality. But now here we are in 2020 
And it's as if all those hippie communes are now normative and dominant. It's really extraordinary. You and I are old enough to remember the falling of the Berlin Wall and what that signified. You know, people had died trying to get out of East Berlin. And now it's as if that never happened and uh, 100 million people were never put to death. And so all of this gets to your point about cultural amnesia. History is being wiped out right in front of us. And uh, sometimes I wonder if you and I are uh, maybe not redundant, but almost out of a job that we're just speaking into the void. <laughs> yeah, we all need to get into critical theory and then we can reinvent ourselves, Scott, at this point. <laughs> it seems yeah, unlikely of late. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're correct. In fact, just as an aside, it makes me feel incredibly old when you say you and I are old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. Part of me is thinking, is there anybody alive who doesn't remember that? <laughs> it seems like only yesterday. Yeah, my students, I have to describe the significance of the fall of the Berlin Wall to my students. because There was a wall in Berlin? Yeah, exactly, with gun turrets and all the rest. Yeah, but I, I think you're correct. Of course, what is history? History carries an authority with it, and that's what makes it so powerful. That's why some of the most aggressive debates and indeed street fights of the last 12 months have been around history. Because history does cast its shadow on the present. It does shape the present. And yet what we now see is this real cultural turn against history. I mean, people say, well, no, what we're doing is we're expanding the historical canon. And I make the point to students on one level, I, let me finish this paragraph because the way I'm going to begin it sounds a bit odd. But, you know, I welcome LGBTQ history. You know, I'm a historian. The more voices I can hear from history, the better I will understand the times I'm looking at. But what we're seeing with LGBTQ history and the like, of course, is not an expansion of the canon of voices that we hear in academia. What we're seeing is a total destabilization of the idea of a canon as a concept, that we now have competing histories, not an expanded history, but competing histories. And I think that plays into the cultural amnesia idea, because if you can destabilize the very notion of history, then you are no longer held to account by the standards of history. And one might say that in an odd way, transgenderism is the latest, most radical and most personal application of that. When Bruce Jenner says, you know, finally, I'm free to be myself, what's he saying? He's saying there, I'm finally free to overthrow the history of my own body at this point. Nothing I've done in the past now has any hold over me, other than the ones that I choose it to have over me. So cultural amnesia is very much part of the modern project. And I think, again, transgenderism fits into that framework as a rather ruthless personal application of it. There are many important callings in this life. Physicians, nurses, police officers, and firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important, the ministry of the gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John 6, 66-69. 
Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, his gospel, and his church. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. The guy on the Wheaties box that I remember so clearly from the 1976 Olympics, I was 15, you know, he was heroic. Yeah. running the decathlon and competing in all those events and winning. It was extraordinary. That guy doesn't exist or he's not supposed to exist anymore. And uh, to connect that with my next question, it's Marx who makes it possible for a decathlete and a highly successful you know, public person, a celebrity, to become a victim. Karl Marx rewrites history in a sense or recasts it as a story of oppressors and the oppressed. How does that factor into what we're seeing? And I'm also thinking about, as you say, the conflicts that we've seen, the street fighting that we've seen over the last 12 months. Yeah, well, you're correct there in seeing Marx as key to that. I mean, Marx really does, in some ways, he doesn't just turn Hegel on his head, he turns history on its head as well and makes the victims will be the ultimate heroes for Marx. Of course, he's thinking very much in, in, in we might say, classical economic slash political terms. For him, the oppressed are pretty easy to identify. They're the people at the bottom of the economic food chains, the proletariat. What we have today, of course, is this interesting kind of postmodern turn or twist where Okay, the Marxists have lost the economic argument, it seems, but the logic of Marxism is now refracted through this sort of post-colonial, post-structuralist lens, whereby the key is not so much the means of production. It's not so much who has capital and who doesn't have it. It's really who has power and who doesn't have it. And power, of course, conceived not simply in the way of, okay, the president has power and you and I don't have power, but power as it's sort of diffused through the various systems that exist in our culture, leading to that, the adjective systemic, as in systemic racism would be one example of this, or systemic sexism. So Marx sets up the play where the victims become the heroes, and the victims have a virtue simply by the fact that they are victims. And then refracted through the 20th century postmodern lens, we sort of get rid of the economic dimension of that and see victims as, well, they're those who don't have power. They're those who are marginalized. They're those who are objectified and shunted to the periphery. So, yeah, Marx is key. The story's a little bit more complicated than Marx, but definitely the founder of the feast on that particular angle. We think of medieval serfs. It's easy to see them as victims. And then it's easy to see you know, 19th century peasants drafted into the new urban economic capitalist machinery, the factories and all of that. So you could see them pretty plainly, in a sense, as victims. But it's a bizarre world in which a wealthy, influential, successful figure, whether Elliot Page or Caitlyn Jenner, they are victims and merely because someone said, well, say, didn't you used to be Bruce? Or says to uh, Elliot, didn't you used to be Ellen? That's a strange definition of 
victim, or at least it should be. We're talking to Carl Truman. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. One other figure that is, uh, well, there's two other figures I want to get to, and then I know I've got to cut you loose here. I'm sure you've got a dozen interviews lined up to do today, so I, I don't want to... I've got a dozen papers to grade, actually, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the light relief of the day. <laughs> okay, good. Well, yeah, that's kind of tragic, you know, when you think about it, when I'm your light relief. One of the most interesting figures in your story is Friedrich Nietzsche. And honestly, I remember reading Nietzsche. I was sitting in the front of a cab. I worked my way through university in part driving a cab and picking people up at the airport and making deliveries and whatnot. So I'm sitting in the front of the cab waiting for a fare to pick up, and I'm reading Nietzsche. And it was strangely thrilling because, as you say, he called the bluff of the Enlightenment. What does that mean? Well, Nietzsche really spots the problem with Enlightenment thinking. It's really this. The Enlightenment wanted to essentially get rid of God. It wanted to get rid of Orthodox Christianity, and yet wanted to maintain the kind of morality that rests upon Orthodox, certainly in Europe, rested upon Orthodox Christianity, upon the, the notion of God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's revelation, etc., etc. And uh, Nietzsche realized you couldn't do that. If you're going to get rid of God, then you really have to get rid of you know, what we would now call all sort of metaphysical constructions. Nietzsche's point was that there is no authority out there to whom we are answerable. And that is both a terrifying and an exhilarating thing. I think the thing about Nietzsche is he sees this as both a scary thing and an exhilarating thing, that we are now adrift in a meaningless universe. And that's terrifying. The challenge is, can we rise to the occasion? And Nietzsche articulates this notion, what he calls the transvaluation of all values, which essentially is the idea that everything's up for grabs and it's up to us to make our own morals and our own meaning at this point in time. And again, when you parlay that over into our contemporary context, and again, I, I don't want to keep picking on transgender people, but they're a good example of this. The transgender person, if you say to them, well, you know, you're not Caitlin, you're Bruce. I think that person would turn around and say, you have no authority to say that. There is no authority beyond individual taste and individual power, and individual will that allows someone to determine what is true for them. So Nietzsche's really the man who blows the lid off this enlightenment sleight of hand. Yeah, we'll keep the morality, we'll keep the, we might say, the middle-class stable respectability that Christianity gives us in terms of its moral order, while sidelining getting rid of God. Nietzsche essentially says, you cannot do that. You want to get rid of God, you want to kill God, you have to become gods yourself. And that means you have to make your own reality. By the way, if I'd ever got into a taxi where somebody was reading Nietzsche, I think I'd have got straight taxi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed you got any fares now. <laughs> well, they were sort of doomed because I was working for the university. So I was, uh, I was set uh, to pick people up. But they didn't have a lot of choice. I, <laughs> I will say, I, I was not the world's greatest taxi driver, so their threat was less Nietzsche and more a distracted undergrad. Yeah, the will to power, and, and I wish we had more time because that notion isn't what people think it is. What you just described, someone saying to me, you know, I'm an aardvark and you must submit to that regardless of whatever your senses may tell you. You must now regard me as an aardvark, and you must affirm me as an aardvark. That's the real will to power. Yeah, yeah. Life is performance. I mean, but the one 
person that I wish I'd had more time to work on in the book was Oscar Wilde. I really do think that Oscar Wilde is the kind of the quintessential Nietzschean Superman in many ways. He's the sexual transgressor, and his whole life is one long public performance, one long act of continual self-reinvention. And, you know, he would never have declared himself to be an aardvark, but, uh, you know, he was a poser. He was a dandy. His whole life was public performance that he required other people to, to give him a claim for. I think I hear your next book. <laughs> it would be fun. It would be fun. <laughs> I think you should do that. I think that would be brilliant. Because well, I am actually working on a short version of the self book, and I'm going to have a chapter on Oscar Wilde in it. So Wilde is going to feature more heavily in the uh, Cliff Notes version of the book. Yeah, you heard it here first. There's going to be a shorter version. And when do you expect this to appear? The manuscript should be finished in June of next year, which would probably mean uh, around about a middle of the year 2022. Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation contacted me after the book came out. And he said, we need this book to give to staffers, but they're not going to read 400 pages. Could you cover the same ground in a shorter time? And Crossway jumped at the idea. So that's my next project. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Last question. There's another figure, and you describe and discuss a whole panoply of figures, but there's another major figure that you describe as central to the story, and that is Sigmund Freud. Why is Freud central to the story of what happened to the West? Freud is important because when you, when you think about that sort of Rousseau internal move, and even the Nietzsche move, it's one thing to say, well, we can invent ourselves or we need to listen to that inner voice and invent ourselves on the basis of it. There's no necessity when you say that in that becoming a profoundly sexual thing. What Freud does is Freud, he agrees with the romantics and with Nietzsche as well and sort of thinking that the individual, it's the move inwards that's important, that we need to understand ourselves psychologically. But what Freud does is say, yeah, when you make that inward move, what you find there is sexual desire. The thing that most fundamentally defines who we are, are our sexual desires. And that's revolutionary because it then means that identity is sexual. And when you think about the language we use today, you know, people are gay, even straight, you know, a straight person, a gay person, a bisexual person. We're defining people in terms of the sexual desires that they have and experience. And that's an interesting move, because if you go back to ancient Greece, there's a lot of homosexual activity going on in ancient Greece. But what you don't find is people identifying themselves as gay or straight. You know, they enjoyed sex, but they didn't think of themselves as defined by the range of their sexual desires or the orientation, as we now say, of their sexual desires. I think they'd have been completely perplexed by that kind of language had one used it with them. So Freud is key because if you want to think of sex as identity, as you know, the Supreme Court of the United States now does, both in Obergefell versus Hodges and more recently in the Bostock case that uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for, if you want to think of identity in terms of sexual desire, you need a figure like Freud, and you need for his thought to have become part of the way people imagine the world to be. So he's very, very important on that front. Fascinating figure. I enjoyed writing that chapter on Freud because he's interesting and provocative, and he is a key figure in the move from Rousseau 
to Obergefell versus Hodges, Caitlin Jenner, etc., etc. And I, for the sake of time, I had to pass over the whole section on the 19th century and poets and romanticism. But I want to close with this, and you've already touched on this. This giant theological revolution, which is what it is as you describe it, and it's really a revolution in what we call a theology, theological anthropology. We used to call it the doctrine of man, or now to be more inclusive, the doctrine of humanity. That's what we're talking about. And this isn't just something that takes place, obviously, you know, between the covers of a textbook. We've seen it played out in the streets of the United States and all across the West. But we've also seen it, as you've already suggested, played out in the courts. And if the listener were to actually read the majority opinion in Obergefell, which you can do, it's online. You can just go to the Supreme Court of the United States or you can just Google Obergefell decision and you'll see the text of the decision. You can sit down and read it. In many ways, it reads like a theological treatise about the nature of humanity more than it reads like a treatise reflecting on law and the Constitution. Yeah, it's a flight of theological fancy in many ways. And uh, I think you're absolutely correct, Scott. And that's why, I mean, there may be uh, young guys and girls listening to this program thinking, you know, what would they like to study? What would be a good topic to do a PhD on? I think that one of the needs of the church at this point, particularly the Protestant church, because we have less tradition of thinking on this, is for good ethicists, good theological anthropologists. Uh, I don't mean anthropologists as in going off and studying, you know, the South Sea Islands. I mean experts in theological anthropology. Those, I think, are big areas where we need people properly trained. I mean, just think about it. We can sit here and think, well, you know, there, there are no gay people in my church. There are no transgender people knocking on their eye. I haven't got to face this. Well, this affects other issues as well. Think about fertility. When I was pastoring, I was always glad that I never had a young couple come into my office and say, we're trying for a child. We can't have one. Is it legitimate for us to have in vitro fertilization? You know, they're desiring something good. It will make them happy. Is that okay? Is that a sufficient ground for saying that that procedure is an okay procedure to have? That connects to precisely the same kind of cultural shifts with their anthropological uh, implications that the transgender story entails. So I would urge listeners, you know, if you're thinking of what should I study, church historians like Scott and myself, ten a penny. What we need is good <laughs> ethicists, good theological anthropologists. These are the people who will be of tremendous service to the church in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And this is your roadmap. The volume is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution by Carl R. Truman. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on Office Hours. This has, I guess, been a workout for some listeners, but it's been stimulating, and I'm grateful personally that you did this. I imagine you're going to hear some about this book. It's been well-received, but I imagine there'll be some pushback. So I imagine there will be at some point. <laughs> Good job I live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let them try to find you in Western PA. <laughs> Lots of trees, lots of places to hide. Well, thank you so much, Carl. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.